This week, Mallinckrodt warns of freefall bankruptcy risk after judge denies request to pay ad hoc groups fees. Chesapeake confirmation continues with Judge Jones concerned over unsecured classes disparate recoveries. And as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Mark Fisher. Later, our Covenants team will examine voting cap restrictions, which have been recent additions to certain agreements. It's Sunday, December 20th. Chesapeake's confirmation hearing ran four days last week and will continue on Wednesday. The hearing began with a warning from Judge David Jones that the debtors and the UCC were, quote, not ready by a long shot for trial. I also worry about the end game on this, Judge Jones said, telling the parties to think about an outcome where the court denies confirmation and the UCC's standing motion, qualifying that the court's comments were, quote, not indicative of anything. During opening arguments on Tuesday, Patrick Nash of Kirkland and Ellis, appearing for the debtors, posited that the debtors' case on confirmation is actually pretty simple. Nash said that the plan meets all the confirmation requirements, but suggested that the court would hear diametrically opposed narratives from the debtors in the UCC. Robert Stark of Brown Rundick for the UCC began with a sanity check of comparing Chesapeake with comparable companies, Comstock, and Range Resources. Chesapeake, quote, swallows those companies' comparables on reserve value and earnings measures, Stark told the court. Yet the debtor's valuation expert says Chesapeake has a lower enterprise value than either of those companies. The confirmation trial began its evidentiary portion on Wednesday with testimony from Chesapeake CEO Doug Lawler and CFO Dominic Deloso. Deloso's testimony continued on Thursday with the CFO describing the company's December 2019 liability management transactions, pre-petition RSA negotiations, the DIP marketing process, and budget, the rights offering, valuation, various plan terms, and payments to royalty and working interest owners. Judge Jones remarked during testimony that the plan's separate treatment and recoveries for Class 6 unsecured notes claims and Class 7 general unsecured claims, quote, is the single biggest problem that you have. This week's hearing concluded on Friday with Judge David Jones asking whether the debtors have, quote, been working on 6 and 7. Patrick Nash of Kirkland and Ellis, counsel to the debtors, said the debtors are working on addressing that issue. The Mallinckrodt debtors may face a freefall bankruptcy after Judge John Dorsey on Monday issued an oral ruling denying without prejudice the debtors' motion to pay the fees and costs of unsecured opioid claimant and noteholder ad hoc groups that have signed on to their RSA. According to the debtors' arguments, in support of the motion, this result could lead to the consenting ad hoc groups terminating the RSA and disbanding, sending the debtors back to square one in a, quote, freefall bankruptcy. In his ruling, Judge Dorsey found that the debtors would not use the RSA to justify payment of the unsecured ad hoc group's post-petition expenses without first seeking to assume the RSA as a pre-petition executory contract under Section 365 of the Bankruptcy Code. The debtors, the judge noted, were essentially asking to begin performing obligations under a pre-petition agreement that may be assumed at a later time but is not currently binding on them. Judge Dorsey also pointed out that the RSA faces real opposition from creditor groups, including the first lien lenders, which the RSA purports to reinstate and render unimpaired. The judge held that without the RSA being assumed, the debtors were unquestionably seeking allowance and payment of post-petition administrative claims for the RSA groups and under Third Circuit precedent that requires the movements to, movements to demonstrate that the groups 
have made a, quote, substantial contribution to the estate under Section 503B of the Bankruptcy Code. The debtors in the RSA group failed to, failed to satisfy that standard, the judge concluded. After issuing his rule, Judge Dorsey invited the debtors to file a motion to assume the RSA or seek approval of a post-petition reimbursement agreement with the RSA groups. The First Link Group has signaled that it would oppose any assumption motion and suggested that the debtors avoided seeking to assume the RSA to forestall rediscovery on the $1.6 billion opioid settlement and restructuring plan. On the island of Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority Governing Board approved the renewal of an interagency agreement between PREPA and the PREPA Revitalization Corp., a special purpose vehicle created under Act 4 of 2016 to execute a restructuring of the public utilities debt through a securitization mechanism. The move comes amid PREPA's ongoing Title III proceeding with utility officials, pointing to an aim to restructure PREPA's debt in 2021. Quote, PREPA management believes that it may be necessary as part of the ultimate resolution of Title III to use the vehicle created in 2016 for securitization transactions, said Jamie Lopez, the utilities deputy director of finance and administration, adding that using the existing PREPA revitalization corp could materially cut down on the time and costs associated with the future restructuring process. Fernando Padilla, PREPA's Deputy Director of Operations, said the utility was, quote, advised to keep the special purpose vehicle in place in order to have it available for when those restructuring bonds are issued. During a public meeting Friday, PROMESA Oversight Board Executive Director Natalie Juresco said the aim is to complete the Commonwealth and PREPA debt restructurings during 2021. The Oversight Board has resumed discussions with, board, with both Commonwealth and PREPA creditors after pausing both transactions to take stock of the COVID-19 pandemic's economic impact, and executing both deals would complete 95% of Puerto Rico's debt targeted for the restructuring, according to Juresco. Top red stories this week included Reorg DIP database shows Q1 to Q3 2020 DIP volume exceeded $18 billion due to large energy consumer discretionary loans. Citibank mistaken transfers fight related to Revlon is not the easiest case, Judge Furman says. After closing arguments, we'll issue opinion, quote, as soon as I can. Three, court rules for Transocean on indenture breach motion for summary judgment. Next, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Mark, and hello to whoever's listening. Somebody has to be there to toss in their football around the trading floor, I guess. And this week brings Christmas to those of those who follow the Gregorian calendar. For more traditional folks like yours truly, who prefer the old one, it's on January 7th. Anyways, as you might imagine, it's a front-loaded sort of week. With Monday, December 21st, bringing confirmation hearing and extraction and also confirmation hearings in PAC-D and 24-Hour Fitness. There is a second-day hearing in C-Drill and a MOLIS application hearing in Hertz. Tuesday, December 22nd, omnibus hearings in Malincroat and Purdue, gathering agreement rejection hearing in Gulfport, and a confirmation hearing in Speedcast. Wednesday, December 23rd, there's an emergency hearing in Westmoreland. And Thursday, December 24th, it's Christmas Eve, which always recalls to me Shane McGowan, his classic song, Fairy Tale in New York, first line of which begins so poignantly, it was Christmas Eve in the drunk tank. An old man said to me, we won't see another one. One of my favorite seasonal melodies, along with the Ronnie James Dio version of God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, featuring Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath on guitar. And Friday, of course, is Christmas Day. 
And this is the final podcast of the year 2020, which will certainly live in infamy, the year I mean, not the podcast, and would certainly require someone of the caliber of Tom Wolfe or Dostoevsky to describe it all. Nevertheless, as a wise man once said, it is history itself that provides grounds for optimism. So fare thee well, folks, and thanks for your support. Back to y'all up in New York. And next up, here's Peter and our Covenants team. Thanks, guys. Uh, today I'm here with uh, Mitch Oates, who is, um, who is a part of the Covenants team and is, is our uh, primary specialist. Uh, Mitch, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Peter? I'm good. I'm good. I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to the holidays. But um, but uh, before we get to the holidays, um, so Mitch, um, a few weeks ago, I know you reviewed a, a new high yield issuance uh, from Ancestry. I believe it was uh, uh, in connection with uh, Blackstone's uh, purchase of the company, and you came across um, some interesting provisions in the voting uh, section. Um, could you tell us a little about those? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so this was uh, an issuance uh, late in November, like you said, um, in connection with Blackstone's acquisition of Ancestry. And um, I guess just a little bit of context uh, under the Ancestry notes, like under most notes, you know, to take certain actions, you know, for example, to um, declare uh, certain types of default or to accelerate the notes, you need uh, participation by note holders representing a, a, a specified percentage of the outstanding principal amount. So under the ancestry notes, uh, which is typical, you need 30 percent uh, participation, 30 percent note holder participation to accelerate the notes. Um, under most notes, um, uh, a note holder can vote whatever share of notes, uh, whatever share of the outstanding notes it holds. So a note holder that uh, held 31% of the outstanding notes could accelerate uh, based on only its own notes, even if no other note holders participated. Um, that's standard in, I think, every issuance that we've seen. Um, the ancestry notes included a a new provision that, to our knowledge, has not appeared before in the U.S. market or, or European market, um, under, uh, which is called a, a voting cap provision. And what this provision does is to, it says for in, in any context in which um, note holders need to provide a, a threshold of consent, so that might be for declaring a default or um, in amending the provisions of the notes, a note, any notes that an individual note holder or its affiliates, um, if that group, any notes that that group holds in excess of 20% of the total outstanding are disregarded for voting purposes. And so, 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 so sorry, so, so, so you're saying if, let's say you have a hundred million dollar issuance uh, and I own uh, 40 million of the notes. So I own 40% of the issuance. You're saying that gives, um, uh, that means I can only vote uh, 20, 20, 20%, I can only vote 20 million of my, of my notes since uh, anything above is going to be above this voting cap? So at first glance, um, it kind of, you have a voting cap and it's capped at 20%. It seems like, you know, for example, uh, if, you're, if your threshold for acceleration is 30%, 
that um, a note, no individual note holder would be able to do that. But that's not, it's not quite true uh, under the way the, the ancestry cap operates because um, as is drafted, the, the um, what it says is that um, any notes above 20% of the principal outstanding are disregarded for all purposes. So to take your, so all purposes would mean both uh, notes that are counted towards the threshold of consenting note holders and the total notes outstanding. So to take your example, if you have um, a hypothetical issuance where 100 million, with 100 million outstanding principal, you have a note holder with uh, an individual note holder group that holds 40 million of those notes. Um, in a in any in a if, if a vote were taken, um, you would have to disregard the notes above the 20% threshold. So in that case, it would be 20 million of the notes, but they would be disregarded um, both from consenting note holders and from the total. So what you'd be left with is the 20 million that that note holder group is allowed to vote out of 80 million, which is the original 100 million minus the 20 million that's outstanding. So that, you know, in that scenario, that individual note holder still could not unilaterally accelerate under a 30% threshold, but it would still have 20 million out of 80 million outstanding for 25% voting power. So oh. the, point, the point here is that it doesn't, it doesn't, though the, the cap is set at 20%, it doesn't actually cap voting power at 20% necessarily. And and so is this um, is this an automatic trigger or like an ancestry kind of pick and choose which holders over twenty percent uh, are capped and or and which are not? Yeah, so that is that that's that's the another interesting part here um, is that it it applies to any holder except that the issuer can at its discretion and um, you know without. Uh, obtaining any any further consent can decide to um, expand or well to to raise the cap or waive the cap entirely for any particular note holder um, for any reason um, so you know as you can imagine that would give um, the issuer quite a bit of leverage in uh, you know for example in a situation where um, it wanted to under there was a, an amendment to the indenture that it wanted to undertake, which would require a majority of note, hold, note holders to consent. Um, it could sort of pick and choose uh, in, in a situation where, say, there there's you know more than one note holder that's above the twenty percent threshold to allow um, the note holder that note holder group that wants to side with the issuer to exceed the threshold while um, enforcing the threshold with respect to many other groups. Uh, oh, that's uh, okay. So, uh, so I see. So just yet another technique uh, that these issuers have now to kind of wield power over kind of decision-making under, under the notes. But so if I'm a, if I'm a holder in this, in this hypothetical hundred million dollar note issuance and I own 15 million uh, of the notes. So, uh, you know, my voting won't be capped. Um, at worst, all all holders kind of can vote their 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 notes like like usual. But at best, 
if if the issuer were to kind of uh, act on this voting cap and cut down uh, some holders who own over 20 percent, cut down their notes for voting purposes, my 15 million of, of, of own notes actually becomes a little more powerful in 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 any vote. Right. Yeah, that would be true, because, um, you know, in, in any scenario where the voting cap would come into play. Um, so if you have a note holder that holds more than 20% of the outstanding principal, and then you therefore have to disregard some of those notes from the total outstanding, that's going to increase the effective voting power of any group that's underneath the 20, that, that's below the 20% voting cap. Um, you know, in some, in most scenarios, it would be a pretty, it could be a pretty small increase, but, um, you know, it, it would increase uh, smaller note holders' voting power somewhat. Uh, okay, that's interesting. And and so, is there still a scenario uh, with these notes? Let's say, uh, you know, assume that the issuer will will enforce the voting cap. Is there still a scenario where I can buy enough of the notes um, so that uh, I still can get over that thirty percent threshold, so I can still control uh, whether or not to 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 declare a default? Uh, even if I have to buy more notes than I would have otherwise have had to. Yeah, you can. Um, so that's kind of the, you know, it doesn't cap um, a note holder's voting power at 20%, but it, it does dilute it somewhat significantly. So for example, under the ancestry notes, and again, this is, this is typical, uh, you need 30% uh, note holder participation to accelerate the notes. Um, under the ancestry notes, a single note holder group could still get to that threshold, but it would, instead of needing uh, just you know 30.1% as it normally would, it would need to hold about 53.3% of the total outstanding to reach the 30% voting power threshold after you account for disregarding the notes over 20% of the actual outstanding total. Okay, so it's still it's still possible. It just it just makes it uh, it makes it somewhat uh, less 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 likely and, and, and mildly unfeasible to have to own fifty percent of an issue and just to get control of thirty percent. Um, huh, and so, how do these kind of play along with um, you know net short provisions, which were something that came you know started last year? That is um, you know another kind of technique that these issuers have to limit the rights of certain holders from from voting their notes. Yeah, so there are the, the ancestry notes also do include net short provisions, um, but they, they operate differently. Um, the net short provisions, uh, first they apply, um, they apply to um, notices of default, of specified defaults, non-payment defaults and um, <clears throat> accelerations um, relating to those defaults. And the way the net short provisions operate, and essentially they um, um, do not allow note holders that hold a you know an overall short position with respect to the issuance to to vote at all. But the the mechanism by which they the net short provision operates is that uh, when a vote is 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 taken when a, in any context where you know, a note holder um, in any voting context, let's say, um, the 
note holder has to make a representation that it is not net short. And if it can't make that representation, it doesn't get to vote. Or if it makes a false representation, then its votes are disregarded. But it sort of, it doesn't, at least as set forth in the, you know, as the provision is set forth, it's not the same mechanism where, you know, the net notes of a net short note holder are disregarded for all purposes. It's just they're not allowed to vote. What's interesting under the ancestry notes is a position representation is also required as to whether a note holder exceeds the voting cap. It's not, you know, not entirely clear how that interacts with the, you know, the provision elsewhere, you know, that clearly requires the notes in excess of that cap to be disregarded. But they would interact in different ways. So conceivably, if I own like a 15 million of the 100 million, and you have a few holders who own over 20%, and then you have other holders who are net short, I mean, conceivably, my 15% ownership of the notes could turn out to be, you know, a significant chunk of kind of the voting once, you know, once the net short holder, once the net short notes are kind of canceled out, and once all the notes held by single owners over 20% are canceled out, that 15% ownership, you know, could be in the 20s or even 30% effect of voting, right? Well, it's only the, it's only the shares in excess of the voting cap that are actually that are going to be taken out of the denominator. So you'd still need in the, you know, in the, in the votes for which a, the net short provisions apply the, these non-payment defaults, those note holders are just not permitted to vote. But yeah, it's correct that if you have, you know, I guess, in a scenario where you had, you know, maybe, you know, one note holder that is considerably in excess of the 20% cap or more than one note holder that's in excess of that cap, you could, you know, so for example, if you had two note holders, each holding a 40% share, a 10% note holders effective voting power would go up to 20%. Right. Okay. Very interesting. These are, these are some interesting topics. And it's nice to kind of end the year with, with some interesting provisions. Anyway, Mitch, thanks very much for, for being on this podcast and hope you and your family have a great holiday week or two weeks. Do you as well. Happy holidays. All right. Take care, Mitch. You too. Bye. And thank you again for listening to this reorg weekly review. This will be our final pack podcast of 2020. We hope you and your families are healthy and safe and have a very happy new year.